Let's pray together. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. For years now, we have heard people tell us, embrace this cause or support this position, because if you don't, you will end up on the wrong side of history. And who wants that? Who wants to be on the wrong side of history? Nobody. Uh, Everybody wants to be on the right side of history. We want future generations to look back upon us and see us as virtuous and say they did the right thing in their time. But how do we know we're on the right side of history? This has really become a technique, telling people, support this cause, embrace this position, or or, or you won't end up on the right side of history. This has really become a, a technique of shaming people, manipulating people to embrace various causes or positions that are trendy in the moment, that are politically correct. But again, how do we know we are really on the right side of history? To know we're on the right side of history, we've got to know how history will end. That's the only way we can really know who's on the right side of history. And this passage in Philippians 2 shows us how history will end. Indeed, it shows us how to be on the right side of history. The only way to end up on the right side of history is to stand on the right side of Jesus. Because Jesus is the Lord of history. And he is coming again to end history as we know it and to pronounce final judgment. And only those who stand with him will stand on the right side of history. Jesus is the one who will judge everyone and everything. He's the one who will judge everyone who has ever lived and everything that's ever happened in history. He will bring the story of of the world to an end when he returns. Many things hailed as progress today are actually perversions. And many things dismissed as backwards and as archaic traditions are actually reflections of God's own righteousness. The only way to know the difference is by the word of God. The only way to really know the difference between what is a perversion and what is righteous is by looking to God's word. The dividing line is always loyalty to Jesus and his teachings. So the only way to be on the right side of history is to be on the right side of eternity. And the way to be on the right side of eternity is to be loyal to the one who sits at the right hand of God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns over all who was and who is and who is to come. Because at the end of history, what does Philippians 2 tell us? At the end of history, every knee will bow before King Jesus. At the last day, every tongue will confess Him as Lord. That's what this passage shows us. This is the future. Those who bow before Him in history are on the right side of history. Those who do not bow before him right now, those who uh, do not bow before him by choice right now, will bow before him. They will bow before him by force at the last day. 
the real heroes and villains of history, the, the good guys and bad guys of history, will be determined by one thing and one thing only. Did you bow the knee to Jesus willingly in history during your lifetime? And if not, you will still bow the knee at the last day, but you'll do so on the wrong side of that great divide that will happen at that day. See, this is Christ the King Sunday. This is a Sunday to look ahead to the end of history, to the last day, to the consummation of the kingdom Christ has inaugurated. This is the last Sunday of the church year. It's a feast day uh, on the church calendar that points ahead to that final day when Christ returns. The ending of the calendar each year reminds us how history will end, not with a whimper or even with a bang, but with the sound of a trumpet. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, history will end with the sound of a trumpet and the descent of Christ from heaven to earth to complete his work. To make heaven and earth one. To make heaven and earth new. To finish his work of redemption. Christ the King Sunday does not mean Christ becomes king at the end of history. He's already king. Uh, He became king in his resurrection. And in his ascension. And he's been growing his kingdom ever since he poured out his spirit at Pentecost. What does Christ the King Sunday do for us then? Christ the King Sunday points to the finished kingdom, to the completed work, to the consummation of the kingdom with the final judgment and the final form of the new creation. It points us ahead to that that last day when all will be raised from the dead and when his people will be glorified. Christ the King Sunday reminds us the goal of history is Christ's glory and Christ's kingdom. When at the last day, Christ will hand over his completed kingdom to the Father. When as the new Adam, he perfects his dominion over the whole creation and then hands that completed kingdom over to his Father for the Father's approval. Christ the King Sunday reminds us that media personalities and political figures who tell us that we, as Christians, are on the wrong side of history, are wrong themselves. Christ the King Sunday points us ahead to that last day when we will be vindicated. And when those who have rejected Jesus and despised Jesus' word will be put to shame. Christ the King Sunday is a relatively recent Addition to the church calendar, so it's not as well known as other days on the church calendar. This feast day was instituted in the early part of the 20th century. And uh, from the beginning of its celebration, the church has used this day to remind its own members and to remind the world that Christ is coming again. That Christ will come, as we confess in the creed, to judge the living and the dead. And because he is judge of all at the last day, we must serve him this day. Uh, One liturgical theologian, Robert Weber, uh, describes the Feast of Christ the King this way. He says, this day points toward the cosmic and eschatological character of Christ's reign over the world. That is, it points us ahead to when Christ's reign fills the cosmos in a visible way on that last day. But he says, precisely for this reason, 
Christ the King has implications for the here and now. What will happen in the future determines what ought to happen right now. And so again, listen to Weber. Although Epiphany, Easter, and Ascension are already feasts of the King, the church sensed the need for an additional feast to combat the secularization of the world and of society. Thus, Christ the King Sunday was envisioned as a proclamation for governments and institutions to submit to Christ as well as individuals and families. Now, look at this hymn in Philippians chapter 2. I say it's a hymn because it has all the uh, the marks and, and poetic features you would expect to find in an ancient hymn. It might be a hymn that Paul himself composed for this letter as he was writing this letter to the Philippians. It might be a hymn that the Philippians already knew that was common among early Christians that Paul drops into the letter here at this point to show how what they already believe, what they are already singing, fits with what he's calling them to do in the surrounding sections of this letter. But either way, this is the hymn of all hymns. It is the ultimate hymn, uh, as it so beautifully crystallizes the whole story of the gospel, beginning with the incarnation and, and then moving through the whole course of Christ's life and ministry to its, to its end point, to its goal, to its destination. The incarnation, that, that's the term we use to describe God becoming man, God the Son becoming the Son of Mary. We're about to celebrate Christmas. Christmas is the feast of the incarnation. Uh, God becoming man, coming to, to dwell among us. God becoming one of us uh, in the man Jesus, in the baby Jesus. Well, what does Paul say here about the incarnation? Paul, speaking of Jesus, says he is in the form of God and he is equal to God. That's in verse 6. He is also in the likeness of men in verse 7. And he was found in appearance as a man in verse 8. Paul uses these phrases to indicate that Jesus is true God and true man. That he is fully God and fully man. He comes in the form of God. He is equal to God. He also comes in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, and not merely appearance. Don't think of that as, oh, well, he only appeared to be a man, but he wasn't really. No, this is Paul's way of saying, he is he is fully one of us. He's fully God, and he's fully man. He's true God, and he's true man. And the way he lived then reveals to us true deity and true humanity. What is what What God is and what man ought to be are revealed in Jesus. What God is and what man ought to be are revealed in the way Jesus lived his life. You want to see true Godhead? True Godhood? Look at Jesus. You want to see true manhood? Look at Jesus. That's what this hymn is saying. True Godhood and true manhood are revealed in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so Paul, he he describes Jesus in these ways. He's in the form of God. He's in the likeness of men. But then this hymn calls on us to consider how Jesus lived his life. And again, here Paul uses some key phrases. Verse 6, he did not exploit his equality with God. That is, he did not use his equality with God for his own advantage. This gets translated in in different ways uh, in in different uh, English versions. But I think that's the best way to read it here. 
He did not exploit his equality with God. He did not use his equality with God for his own advantage. He did not use equality with God in, in, in selfish or self-serving ways. Instead, verse 7 says, he made himself nothing. Or again, here it's translated different ways. I think it's better read. He emptied himself. He poured himself out. Think of a drink offering at the tabernacle or at the temple. He emptied himself. He poured himself out like a drink offering. How did Jesus live his life? He lived a life of self-giving love, pouring himself out for the sake of others, pouring himself out for the sake of his disciples, pouring himself out for the sake of the world, for the life of the world. And of course, this outpouring comes to a culmination in the cross. The ultimate outpouring is his death on the cross. Verse 8 also describes this in terms of his humility. He humbled himself. And how far did he go in his humility as true God and true man? You might think, oh, he's just going to always display his glory. He'll have a royal birth and a high place and he'll live this very exalted and comfortable life where he's constantly bossing others around and simply living for his own pleasure. That's what we see people all around us doing with power, exploiting their power for their own ends. But that's not how Jesus lives his life. As true God and true man, how does he live? He lives a humble life. And how far did he go in humility? Well, the hymn tells us He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The hymn itself expresses astonishment at the depths to which he was willing to go, the lengths to which he was willing to go in displaying his humility, in in emptying himself and pouring himself out. This is what is so astounding. This is what is so astonishing. The one who is God in the flesh, the God-man, obeys his father, he fulfills his father's plan, he carries out the mission his father gave him. Even though that mission requires his death, and not just any form of death, but the most shameful and painful form of death possible, the death of the cross. You know, who got crucified in the ancient Roman world? Crucifixion was the worst kind of death imaginable. Uh, Crucifixion was reserved only for the dregs of society, for the worst of the worst criminals, for the lowest of the low. The one crucified died in the most utterly shameful way. He died naked on the cross, uh, full of shame. Uh, It was the most agonizing way possible to go. And in Jesus' case, it was all the worse Because he not only endured the physical pain that all who underwent crucifixion experienced, he also bore the wrath of God. An eternal hell compressed into three hours of suffering on that tree. This is not just any death. It's death by crucifixion. And it's not just any crucifixion. This is a very special death. It's a death where the Son of God in human form bears Our punishment. What is he doing when he dies? He's sinless. All the trial accounts in the Gospels make this very clear. Jesus has committed no sin. As the God-man, he has lived a sinless life, a life of perfect obedience. So what is he doing? Why is he dying? He's sinless. But he's taking the punishment sinners deserve. Dying as a substitute 
in our place. He was sinless, but he dies a criminal's death. He's the most righteous one to have ever lived, but he dies the worst possible death. Nailed to a tree between two common insurrectionists. He suffers and he bleeds for his very enemies. That's what the cross is all about. He suffered and bled for his enemies. He dies for the very people who have killed him. He dies at the hands of these murderers, but he's also dying for these murderers. He's dying for the very ones who sinned against him in order that their sins might be forgiven. This is the righteous in the place of the unrighteous. The righteous taking what the unrighteous deserves so the unrighteous can be declared righteous and accepted as righteous. So Jesus in his life, and yes, even in his death, reveals true manhood and true godhood. The cross reveals true manhood. Man was made to obey God at every point. And here you see Jesus obeying his Father at every point. And the cross also reveals true godhood. What God is really like. You want to know what God is really like. Look at the cross. God is a God of love. God is kind and humble. He's the cleansing God, the sacrificing God, the self-giving God. This is what it means for God to be God. His love, His suffering, His serving, His sacrificing. This is what we see at the cross. The one who is in the very form of God and in the likeness of men. Providing a sacrifice of infinite worth. That sinners like us, sinners like you and me, might be saved. His death is our rescue from death. His cross secures our crown. His condemnation is our acquittal. His bloodshed is our ransom payment. It is our redemption. His self-emptying fills us with blessing. His humiliation is our exaltation. He makes himself nothing that we might become something. He is cursed so we might be blessed. And this paradox, these, the, these paradoxes of the cross, this is what the Christian gospel is all about. But this is also the ultimate offense of the Christian faith. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, the cross is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. Nobody likes the cross. The Greeks didn't like it. They didn't like this message. The Jews didn't like this message. Greeks found it to be foolish. Jews stumbled over it. The cross is the great offense of the Christian faith. What is the most offensive thing about the Christian faith? There are a lot of things Christians believe, especially in our world today, that are very offensive. But what is the most offensive thing we believe? The most offensive thing about the Christian faith is not the creation account, though that's controversial. In a world that's given over to some kind of neo-Darwinian evolutionary theory for us to take our stand on Genesis 1 and say, no, this is how God created. That's controversial. But it's not the most controversial thing about the Christian faith. It's not our sexual ethics, as controversial as that is, what we believe about sex or about men and women or about marriage. That's controversial, but that's not the most controversial thing about the Christian faith. It's not the miracles You know, we say we believe every miracle recorded in Scripture actually happened. And people think that's ridiculous. They find it offensive to human reason and human experience. I think there are really good arguments you can make for believing in these miracles as recorded in Scripture. 
That's offensive to the world. But that's not the most offensive thing about the Christian faith. The greatest offense of the Christian faith is found right here. It's the cross. The greatest offense of the Christian faith is grace. It's the grace found at the cross. Nothing so offends. Nothing causes stumbling more than grace. More than the grace found at the cross. The the free gift of salvation that comes through the cross. That is the ultimate offense of the Christian faith. The cross is the grace of God. The son was obedient to the point of death. This is how God in his love and wisdom brings about our salvation. And it's all a gift. That's what you see at the cross. It is all a gift from beginning to end. The whole of our salvation is God's doing. God's working. And you know why that's offensive? It offends our pride. It offends our sense of self-sufficiency. It offends our pride, our desire to want to earn it and pay our way so we can get the credit, so we can get the glory. And the cross says, no, you can't earn your way. You can't purchase your own salvation. You can only receive salvation as a gift purchased by another on our behalf. And no, that means you're not going to get any glory for salvation. You're going to have to give all the glory to God. That's the offense. That is the central offense of the Christian message, the Christian gospel, the Christian faith. The cross, then, is not just the crucifixion of Jesus. The cross is also the crucifixion of our pride. To receive what the cross accomplished, we have to nail our pride to the tree there with Jesus. To receive what the cross accomplished, we have to descend with Jesus in humility. We have to humble ourselves before him and say, yes, we need the bleeding charity. We need to be objects of God's pity, God's charity, God's mercy. We have to humble ourselves. And there's nothing more humbling, nothing more humiliating than this, than acknowledging we cannot save ourselves. And we must receive it as a gift. Paul introduces this hymn By saying we should have the same mind among ourselves that was in Christ Jesus. We should have the same mindset, the same way of thinking, the same pattern of thought among ourselves and our community that was found in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying, live in a way that reflects your union with Christ. Make the pattern of Christ's own life your pattern of thinking and living as well in your community. It's interesting, the way this hymn tells the story of Christ, uh, the way it tells the story of Christ actually contrasts with the story of Adam. And, and, and the parallels or the contrasts are so deliberate, it has to be by design. Clearly, what this hymn is doing is setting a contrast between the way Jesus lived his life all the way through his death and the way Adam Lived, especially as we see the fall unfolding in Genesis chapter 3. Think about the way this contrasts. The first Adam, then Genesis 3, and then the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, as he is described here in Philippians 2. Whereas Adam exalted himself, Jesus humbled himself. Whereas Adam filled himself with the forbidden fruit, Jesus emptied 
himself. Whereas Adam seized and grasped for himself, the second Adam, he, he, he had equality with God, but he didn't, he didn't use that to seize anything for himself. He, he didn't exploit that to his own advantage. Whereas Adam tried to seize equality with God, Jesus already had equality with God, but did not use it for his own advantage, for his own selfish purposes. And actually, the, the contrast between Jesus and Adam continues on into the next section of the hymn. So you see how their paths diverge. Because of Adam's disobedience, what happened? He was demoted. He was cast out of the garden. He had to go down and out. He had to descend down the mountain of Eden and go out of the garden into the wilderness. Adam sins, so he is demoted. He's sent down and out. Well, what about Jesus? Because he's obedient in the Garden of Gethsemane, even to the point of death, what happens? He is exalted and given a name above every name. He moves up and in. Further up and further in, as C.S. Lewis famously put it. The Father has exalted the Son He has graced the Son with a name above every name. Why? Because he's been faithful to the Father's plan. He's executed the plan. He's carried it out. He's been obedient at every point. Even when obedience required this shameful, painful death of the cross. And because Jesus was willing to go so low, he's been exalted to the highest place. That exaltation began with the resurrection. It continues with the ascension up into heaven where he was seated in the heavenly sanctuary at the Father's right hand and given all authority over the whole creation. So what's the contrast here between Adam and Jesus? Adam lost the earthly sanctuary. Jesus enters the heavenly sanctuary. Adam lost all dominion. Jesus gains all dominion. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And then Paul fast forwards to the end of the story, to the conclusion of the story. Verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, so Jesus has been given this name above all names. He's been crowned with the highest name of all. Verse 10 tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. Every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. Every knee of those in heaven, those would be the angels. Of those on earth, that would be humans, us. And of those under the earth, that would be the demons. Even the demons are going to bow. And Paul goes on, not only will every knee bow before him, but as verse 11 goes on to say, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Every tongue is going to confess Jesus. Every tongue is going to sing his praises. What does that all mean? Well, again, this is really what Christ the King Sunday is all about. This is what you need to understand. History is a story. And the plot of that story is the gospel. I've just given it to you. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus as true God and true man, as the new Adam, ushering in his kingdom. Well, how does that story end? If that's the plot, how is it going to all resolve? How how does it it end? Because obviously now in history you have this battle, this interlocking battle between two kingdoms, the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan. How is it all going to resolve? Well, here it is. 
Here you see how the story ends, how it comes to a conclusion. A day is coming when Jesus will return in glory. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And that is the conclusion of history. That is the goal of history. And when Christ appears in glory at the last day, no one will be able to resist. He will overpower and overwhelm us all with his strength and with his splendor. You know, it's interesting. This is always the pattern in Scripture. Whenever God shows up, whenever there's some visible manifestation of God's glory, what happens? People always fall before him. They always bow the knee and they always confess with their tongue. You see it all throughout Scripture. In Genesis 17, when the Lord appeared to Abraham, he fell on his face. In Exodus chapter 3, when the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush, Moses had to hide his face. In Joshua chapter 5, when Joshua sees the Lord of armies, the, 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 the Lord as the commander of his heavenly army, Joshua falls on his face. In Isaiah 6, when the prophet sees the Lord high and lifted up, exalted in glory, he falls down crying out, woe is me. In Ezekiel 1, when Ezekiel sees the Lord of glory, he falls on his face before this vision of glory. It's the same in Daniel chapter 10, when Daniel the prophet sees the Lord, all his strength leaves him, and he falls trembling on his hands and knees before the Lord. In Acts chapter 9, the the risen Lord appears to Paul on the road to Damascus, and what happens? He falls to the ground, blinded by the light. And he doesn't get his sight back until he's baptized. In Revelation chapter 1, John sees Jesus and he falls to the ground as a dead man. It's like an, it's like experiencing death. It's a near death experience for John to see Jesus. Now all of those appearances I just gave you, all of those appearances are nothing more than faint glimpses of the dazzling, radiant splendor and glory that will be revealed at the last day when Jesus comes. Those are just little pictures, fuzzy snapshots of the glory that will fill the whole cosmos when Jesus comes again at the last day. On that day, jaws will drop, knees will buckle, Heads will bow. Strength will be drained. No one will be able to help themselves. All will fall to the ground before him. They will all bow. No one will have to command them to bow. In all those appearances I just gave you, God did not have to say, bow before me, cover your face before me, fall down like you're dead before me. It just happens. No one will be able to stand up straight, even if they want to. When Jesus appears at that last day. This bowing is not just going to be a matter of polite etiquette. The glory will so overwhelm every creature that no one will be left standing. The whole human race and the whole angelic host will be flattened when he appears at that last day. That's what you need to know. That day is coming. That day is coming. The whole of humanity will bow. The whole creation will bow before Him. Those who have loved and trusted Jesus will gladly bow before Him. It will be our joy to kneel and to confess. 
But his enemies will kneel and confess as well. Those who have lived and died as his enemies will kneel before him and will confess his lordship as well. Every Muslim knee will kneel. Every Muslim tongue will confess. Every Muslim, every Hindu, every Buddhist, every atheist knee will bow. Every agnostic tongue will confess. Uh, Every Republican, every Democrat will kneel and confess. Every gay and lesbian will kneel and confess. Everyone will kneel and confess before Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. Everyone will kneel before his glory and will confess that he has been given a name above every name. Every single knee will bow. Every single tongue will confess. On that day, what is true this day will become obvious to all. On that day, the truth that Christ is Lord will be the most obvious fact in the universe. Nobody will argue it. Nobody will dispute about it on that day. There will be no argument you can make. All arguing and disputing will be over. Everyone will know. Everyone will agree. Every creature will confess and submit to Jesus as Lord. There will be no resistance. No one will refuse to bow. No one will stay silent. That day is coming. That day is coming. Now many today are oblivious to the reality of Christ's lordship, that Christ is Lord even right now. They don't see his glory. When they hear the story of the cross, they don't see any glory in it. They are blind to the most fundamental fact of the universe, that Christ is Lord. They don't see his glory in the cross or even the resurrection. They don't see him as Lord, so they don't bow before him. They don't confess him. They think there are other lords. And so they might say, Allah is Lord. Some will say, Allah is Lord. Some will say, Mammon is Lord. Still others will kneel before the God of pleasure as Lord. Still others will make technology their Lord. And they will confess the lordship of technology. But on that day, on that day, everyone will know Jesus is Lord and there is no other. Everyone will see the glory of Jesus. Everyone will know he has been given a name above every name. That he is King of kings and Lord of lords. There are many today who resist that truth. There are many today who resist that truth, but on that day it will be irresistible. There are many who resist this truth thinking that puts them on the right side of history. But on that day they will find they have been on the wrong side of history and they are now on the wrong side of eternity. Now, if that day is coming... That day when the king's glory will shine through the whole universe and fill the whole cosmos. That day when the kingdom will be consummated. If that day is coming, what do we do in the meantime? How do we prepare for that day? We prepare for that day by using these days to obey the king. We bow before him and confess his lordship right now. You might put it this way, beat the rush. (laughs) Beat the rush. Everybody's going to bow before him. Go ahead and do it now. 
Everybody's going to confess him on that day. So what should you do on this day? Well, if you're going to confess him as Lord on that day, you need to confess him as Lord on this day. Christ is Lord right now. Live according to that reality. Live according to the reality of Christ's lordship right now. The best way to prepare for kneeling and confessing on that day is to kneel and confess on this day. So today, kneel before the King of Kings. Confess that Christ is Lord over all, that he's been given a name above every name. You can think of it this way. The church does today what the whole world will do at the last day. We're just ahead of the game. That's why we've gathered here today to kneel before him. To to, to bow the knee to him. To confess with our tongues who he is. But it's interesting. The verses surrounding this hymn give us some hints as to how we can further live out and show our submission to this king right now. Just notice a couple things here as we wrap this up. In the first five verses of chapter 2, as the lead into this hymn, Paul gives a variety of instructions that should characterize our community life, that should characterize every church family. Those who are in Adam live selfish, grasping lives like Adam did in Genesis 3. But those who are in Christ, Paul says, will do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. But rather, in Christ-like humility, they will look out for the interests of others. Unlike Adam, who put his own interests above Eve, his wife, and considered himself better than her, in Christ's community, we learn to consider not only our own interests, but the interests of others, and to esteem others more highly than ourselves, because that's what Christ did. Adam made an idol out of his own mind, out of his own judgment. He made his mind the ultimate authority and standard of truth. But Paul says, in Christ, we learn to practice lowliness of mind. We humble our minds before the standard of God's word. We humble our minds before the lordship of Christ. What was the result of Adam's sin? The result of Adam's pride, the result of Adam's vain conceit, was division as he and his wife turn against each other. But the result of Christ-like humility, the result of humility in Christ, well, Paul describes it here. It's fellowship in the Spirit. It's unity. It's like-mindedness. What characterizes our community? Adam-like pride or Christ-like humility? How do you get ready for the last day? You live in that Christ-like humility right now. But it's interesting. Paul follows up the hymn with further instructions in verses 12 to 20. In verse 15, Paul says the Philippian Christians should shine like stars in a dark world as they hold forth the word of life. And Paul says this they should do this so he can rejoice in the day of Christ. See, there it is, that last day. So he can rejoice in the day of Christ that his ministry has not been in vain. He will know his ministry has not been in vain. He can continue to rejoice in them if they will hold out the word of life, shining as lights in a dark generation. Why does he tell them to shine like stars? You know, stars are dazzling lights that uh, that light up the night sky. They're symbolic throughout Scripture. We you know we might think of movie stars or sports stars. We use that kind of language, but really we should think of God's promise to Abraham. God brings Abraham out of his tent at night, and he says, "Look up at the stars and count them as you can." And he says, "So shall be your descendants." 
They will be like the stars of heaven. And then he tells Abraham, kings will come from you. Because if you go back to Genesis 1, you find stars are set up as rulers. Set up as rulers of the night. So if we're going to be like the starry host of heaven, what does it mean? We in some way shine with Christ's glory into the world right now. We in some way reign with Christ in heavenly places right now. The real stars in the world are not the movie stars or the athletic stars. The real stars in the world are those who share the word of life with others. Those who call upon others to bow the knee to Christ as Lord. You know, stars are little pictures of glory. We could say stars are pointers to the coming glory. We're to shine with a glory right now that points people to that glory that will be revealed at the last day. And further in verse 17, Paul says to them, he is being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of their faith. Remember the hymn describes Christ as emptying himself, pouring himself out. Well, here it's Paul emptying himself, pouring himself out. He's like a cup of wine being poured out at the altar, a drink offering in the tabernacle or the temple. But for Paul, this sacrifice, this outpouring of the self is a joy. He says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. I rejoice to sacrifice myself in this way, to pour myself out in this way. And meanwhile, the Philippians are sacrifices as well. Paul says, you've been offering yourselves to God in faith. That word for offering in the Greek, it's liturgia. We get the word liturgy from it. It's used in the Old Testament to describe the work of the priests in the temple. What is Paul telling them to do? How do we prepare for the last day when every knee will bow? We worship and we serve God. We pour ourselves out as we offer ourselves to God as sacrifices, as we offer to God the sacrifice of lips, the, the, the fruit of lips that, 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 that praise His name. We're going through sacrificial actions this morning in this liturgy. This is what this is. The whole liturgy is a sacrifice of praise offered to God in faith. How do we prepare for the last day? We do what we do on every Lord's Day. We gather here for worship, to do our priestly work, to offer ourselves to God in these sacrifices of praise, to pour ourselves out in praise and thanks, to pour ourselves out in praise and thanks for the sake of the world. That's what we're called to do. And this is how we prepare ourselves for that coming day when Christ will be revealed in all his glory to consummate the kingdom, and every knee will bow and every tongue confess. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.